everyone, I'm Brandon Odo. And I'm Brian Bowling. And this is Critical Care Scenarios, the podcast where we use clinical cases, narrative storytelling, and expert guests to unpack how critical care is practiced in the real world. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Brian Bowling, and with me, as always, is Brandon Odo. Hello, hello, hello. We are, well, but let's open up with a little bit of an announcement um, regarding Patreon. So if, if you don't know, we have a Patreon. Um, we'll put the link in the show notes in case you are interested, uh, where you can, if you're so inclined, throw a little bit of uh, cash to support the show. Uh, certainly not required, but appreciated. Um, we wanted to announce, though, that as a special feature for Patreon subscribers, patrons, I suppose, we're going to be starting to put up some bonus content uh, in the form of some educational talks. Brandon and I both teach and we both speak frequently at events and things. So we have a lot of these talks stored up. Um, and we're going to start giving these talks and uh, recording them and posting them on Patreon. Um, we've had people request this actually before. Um, and so if you're interested in that sort of thing, by joining Patreon uh, and supporting us on Patreon, you'll get access to all of that. Yeah, part of the appeal of Patreon is not just that, you know, it's a kind of easy way to support the show, but it, it creates kind of a community and it's an easy way for us to uh, provide use with some perks as well. So, I mean, we have some stuff that's already been recorded for other events, and um, there's other stuff we could easily record. So whatever we can kind of find to throw your guys' way, it's it's out there. So it's, you know, kind of one more little bonus to supporting us. Yeah, and speaking of community, another uh, another perk of being part of that Patreon community is that uh, you, you get to interact with us. I don't know if that's a perk, but one of the ways that you can interact with us is you can suggest, hey, this is something we'd love to hear you cover on the podcast. And that's actually what sparked today's episode. So one of our patrons suggested this topic, basically requested, said, hey, I uh, I find myself at a loss sometimes when I'm looking at the literature and all the statistics and evidence-based medicine and all that stuff. Can you guys do an episode where you cover that sort of thing? So don't worry. Neither of us are statisticians. We're not going to get deep into p-values and chi-square and all of that stuff. Uh, but we're going to talk a little bit about kind of how we approach reading the medical literature and a little bit of what those statistics mean and practically why we look at them. Yeah, this is a tough topic. And in, in a way, I almost want to say that it's getting tougher um, if you ask any practicing clinician, um, I don't think many have a, a really robust, well-reasoned way to deal with this. A lot of people, they deal with it by kind of neglecting it and kind of minimally engaging with new research until it's become so standard practice that they're, they're forced to change something they do. Um, but for all of us, it's tough. And it's a combination of, there's a lot of it. It takes a lot of work to wade through. Um, and in the end, a lot of it ends up being sort of low impact. Like, it's not like every RCT that comes along changes your practice. Most of it kind of doesn't. And I mean, there's maybe some of it should, but so it ends up just feeling like sort of a lot of work and it's hard to know how to deal with it. So I don't know, we'll give kind of our take for how we do this, bearing in mind that it's probably not the, the best way or, you know, I don't know if there is a best way, but... Yeah, so I think the first question we should tackle is, 
what do you mean? Why do I need a special way, right? I know how to read. I've, I've been reading for most of my life. Um, can't I just pick up a journal article and read it? I mean, you can, but is that the best way to do it? Is that the way to get things out of it? I was telling Brandon right before we started recording, I had um, a great opportunity many years ago, um, back before, way before I was an nurse practitioner, to hear a um, a talk that was given to a bunch of medical students by actually the former chair of the department that I work for now on how to read the medical literature. And I thought, okay, well, this is, we'll see. Um, and he took an article from the New England Journal of Medicine and an article from JAMA, arguably two of the most prestigious journals in the world. And he kind of took them apart. And at the end, I remember thinking, well, gosh, those studies aren't very good. I don't think I would, I don't think I would even act on those, much less change my practice on them. And so I think it's important to understand that just because a journal is well-respected doesn't necessarily mean that everything that they publish is going to be the best. And I don't mean that they publish garbage. I mean that certain things are not always what they seem. Certain things may be applicable to one area of practice, but not yours, um, or different patient populations, et cetera. So I think it's important that we understand how to read an article and not just read the conclusion of, on the abstract and go, great, I'm going to start doing this. Right. Now, the first challenge, I think, is just getting, getting something to read. And this is actually um, kind of less obvious than it seems. If you're not really reading a lot of research yet, you know, how do you get there? The most obvious answer is you subscribe to a bunch of medical journals, but then you have to ask which ones. And I, and I, I think a lot of people, this is actually not their way. How many journals do you actually have a subscription to, Brian? And I'm talking about peer-reviewed medical research. Not, you know, there are a lot of, I often call them trade journals. They're sort of more mm -hmm. light reading for a lot of specialties, uh, kind of news and maybe some opinions and things. This is kind of actual literature. How many do you actually get? Like actually physically delivered to my home or office? I guess electronic counts, but I mean, you know, paid subscriptions that you get it every month or however often they publish. Yeah, so I, if you count electronic, I guess I get three, maybe four. I can't remember. Right, which is not a lot. And I, I get few. I, I think yeah. I only have one right now. I get Critical Care Medicine, which is the SCCM's mm -hmm. journal. A lot that. of these journals are from uh, organizations, you know, medical uh, societies that publish a, a journal as part of one of the things they do. There's not too many that are like standalone things. Uh, smaller ones sometimes are, but... You know, that's part of my membership to SCCM. Would yeah. I do it otherwise? Maybe. But, I mean, it, it does raise a question. Um, they often cost money, and then they kind of pile up, sometimes physically. Um, I don't know. I mean, when you do, then you start to get these things usually every month, mm -hmm. and then you got to decide what, what to do with them. And then it's like a slippery slope. Like, all right, I have two, I have three of these. There's clearly more stuff being published should I be subscribing to all of those too? I mean, everything in my specialty? What about stuff outside of my immediate specialty, things that border it? Should I be subscribing to those too? Um, is this the best way to keep up with new research? I don't know. Yeah, I was going to say, so I get one physically delivered to my home. That's critical care medicine. Um, all of mine that I get 
or because I'm a member of some group, right? So the Neurocritical Care Society Journal, um, because I'm a member of the NCS, um, and I'm a member of the American Association of Critical Care Nurses, so I get their journal. Um, the last two I've elected to get electronically um, simply because, like you said, critical care medicine tends to pile up in my office. Um, I used to keep like the most recent uh, issue on my nightstand next to my bed. Uh, and then I realized that I would, I was never going to read it at night before I go to bed. Um, and so it would just gather dust. And so then I would put them on my coffee table in my office and, uh, same thing, right. They just pile up and pile up and then you end up throwing them away. Yeah. It turns into a, like a burden, right? Like these things keep appearing. And I, um, so I, I don't know. I'll tell you my approach. Um, and there are different ways depending on how much time you have. Uh, Scott Weingart from MCRIT was once famous for sharing his process where he has like 50 subscriptions and then he like reads 600 articles every month or something. Anyway, most of us are not doing that. You know, I, with my one journal, and in the past I've had some others, but really what I do is two things. One, you skim the, the topics to see, is there anything that really seems important and like everyone should know about it? And two, if you have certain areas that you try to follow more closely, somewhere where you kind of try to stay relatively abreast of the literature and have some more expertise. Um, Mark Chrislip over at the Gobbet of Pus once said that one of the things that really defines a, a specialist, like a consultant, is awareness of their literature. You know, they're the ones who know about all the stuff that's not just the, the one or two big things everyone knows, but the stuff that was published two months ago that is actually, you know, clinically applicable you know, maybe you try to read those ones. But I don't think almost anybody is sitting down and reading these things cover to cover. It's it's such a drain on your time. Yeah, absolutely. And I, uh, you know, when I was in school, somebody su suggested to me that one thing you can do is you can subscribe to the table of contents from journals. And so if you don't know this, you can go to pretty much any journal's website and sign up for their table of contents. And they'll email you every month uh, the table of contents for that journal. And then you can sort of look over it and go, hey, this article looks interesting. And especially if you're connected somehow with a library that can get you these articles, then you can say, oh, this article looks from shock, right? Looks interesting. I don't read shock necessarily every month, but this article appeals to me. Uh, and so then I go through my library to get a copy of that particular article. Honestly, I find that that is the digital version of magazines piling up on my coffee table. Um, they come in, they sit in my inbox, they clutter up my inbox. I get to the point where I go, I can't take this anymore. And I delete them. So I think with digital stuff, the temptation is just to subscribe to everything because it's free and it's digital. Um, but it's still, it's going to be the same thing. It's still going to junk up your inbox. So I think you still need to be deliberate in how you do it. Yeah. Now the, the lower impact on your time way is you go one step back and you kind of try to only hear about stuff that is important. This is how I think a lot of people handle the mainstream news now. They don't necessarily follow at all. They assume that if something important happens, they'll hear about it through some other channel. Yeah. So this would be like you and I are active on social media, especially medical Twitter. Most of the important stuff in a field will end up getting discussed there. You know, people share them. Um, so that's like, I mean, that seems like a cop out. You're like, oh, I'm sure I'll hear about something if it's important, but in a way it's true. You know, if you have enough engagement through some kind of, uh, format like that, um, you can do something like 
Uh, Google, you can subscribe to alerts. You put certain search phrases in there and you say, when there's a new result with this, this search term, I want to hear about it. Um, and if you set it up correctly, this will actually let you know when stuff gets published in a certain area. I mean, you should be deliberate about what you want to hear about, obviously. And the other tool that I think can be quite useful is um, critical care reviews, which is a, um, well, they have a few things. They have a conference every year now, but uh, they do a newsletter every week now where they just list kind of new publications in critical care. It's just for critical care. And they go through any new trials, new reviews, um, new observational studies, and they just, they just list them through there. And you can just skim it. And yes, it is one more thing that if you don't have time, you could just delete. But there's probably no more central way to just dump everything into one place and say, um, oh, there's a new trial on this or whatever. And you can just click through to them. Yeah, I do subscribe. I was going to bring that up. I do subscribe to that. Um, and it's one that, I, you know, to be honest, most times when it comes in, I skim through it and delete it. Um, but it's a little bit, it's, I think it's one step up from the subscribing to the digital table of contents from every journal, right? Cause I used to, I used to get those digital table of contents for critical care medicine, for shock, for resuscitation, for trauma, for all of these things that were even like adjacent to critical care, uh, EM journals, right? Um, the critical care reviews is sort of a condensed version of that, right? So instead of getting 10 different emails, I get one and it's sort of curated a little bit. So I don't- Yeah, somebody you know, physically yeah. put those in there because they're relevant. I mean, right. you may not have time for it, but if you don't have time for that, you're probably not gonna have time for anything. <laughs> right, and, and and so rather than me having to look through, you know, like I said, the table of contents for shock, for example, um, somebody's already done that and decided there's really nothing this month that's gonna be of all that great interest. Or maybe there's one, right? And so it's a little bit, it cuts down on a little bit. So let's let's kind of talk about our approach to, you th You know, you found an article that you think is at least worth your time. Um, how do we how do we tackle it? I don't know. I'll, I'll kind of share my general approach if I'm going to take the time to really read something. Um, there's going to be an abstract which summarizes everything. I think everyone starts with reading the abstract bearing in mind that there are pitfalls. It is just a summary. It's not going to tell you a lot of things that may be very irrelevant. So you should have caveats. I mean, there are probably not that many times when you should read only the abstract, although there are many times when people only read the abstract. Yeah. You know, you don't know what's not in there. I mean, you could argue if you either read the whole article or, or nothing at all, but... And then, so what I'll do is skim through the introduction, read the, the, their methods and what they did, and then read, read the results. And as you go through this, you're trying to understand, obviously, what was done, but more importantly, um, how, it, how it could have gone wrong. Because they're going to present you with findings, and it's easy to take them at face value. I mean, they're going to they're gonna show them to you. That's, that's what you do with, by default. But your job is to understand what's not necessarily being said and what, you know, what variables or confounders could be hidden there. And I mean, we don't have time to kind of dig through all of the research methodology and the ways you can go wrong here, but that's kind of, that's your goal here. And they may present some of this, 
Um, and that's the last thing I would do, read their discussion and their conclusions. That's, that's the author's opinion. That's their take on it. It's worth hearing. They are experts on this topic after this exhaustive work they've done on it. But it is just an opinion. Um, and they may have very different conclusions from what you found. That's why I would really start with just the data. What was done? What did they find? Reach some of your own conclusions. Then see what they thought. Um, and this may involve more or less kind of digging through the, the raw numbers and you know looking at p-values and graphs and stuff. Sometimes it's just practical stuff. Like you're like, wow, this was a weird population to recruit. This doesn't fit my practice. That's a that's a difference. I don't know if this applies to me. Or it's weird that they recruited patients who were so sick or, wow, I, I see a, a way here where there's a, a real variable that could have influenced their data that they, they, didn't, they didn't control for. I wonder how that could have impacted the results. And, you know, hey, you could jot these things down, take notes, because in the end, you're going to have to walk away from this, forget most of the details that you addressed unless you, you know, do a podcast on it or something. Um, but you're going to go see patients, and this is either going to impact what you do with your patients or not. And that decision has to be influenced by all these things. You know, you're, you're kind of building your opinion as you go here. Yeah, I think that's really important because I've, I don't know if it's more often than not, but certainly a lot of times have read the conclusion, the discussion, right? They're the conclu author's conclusions first. Then I go back and read the data and go, I don't, I don't know that that's what I get from this, right? Uh, I think you're making some big leaps to draw inferences. And you have to remember that part of the, part of this is it helps to understand the research process um, from a researcher's point of view. You're putting a lot of time. There's a lot of time up front, a lot of work up front before you even do a study, and then you get your data and you go, "Well, crap! This is not what we were hoping for." Um, so now I have the choice: Do I go? Well, this is garbage, and all that time and effort I've put into it already is out the window? Or do I see what I can salvage from this? And I'm not suggesting that people are making stuff up, but you know, maybe you were looking to study one thing and it didn't pan out, but you found kind of accidentally something else that's interesting. That's okay. Uh, but is that really the right conclusion to draw from that? Or is this something that you discovered accidentally that is more, more or less a fluke? Yeah. I mean, there like anything in science and medicine, um, this is not all just raw numbers and scientists. These are human beings and there are individual interests and, and money and politics involved. Uh, a big study, and it, I mean, even the smallest thing you can publish was a great deal of work for the people involved. Um, and many times it's the work of many years and the perspective of the authors is uh, one that is informed by all of that. So they know a lot about this topic, but it is also biased by all of that. Mm -hmm. They are not just picking up a journal and reading about this. This was their blood, sweat, and tears. So, you know, what is their perspective? Well, they want to find something interesting. So practice changing. That usually means a, a quote, positive result, meaning something that uh, was, you know, greater than by chance, their intervention had an effect, or if it was a standard practice, they showed it didn't have an effect, something that is worth publishing. Um, and that's going to be what their, their takeaway and conclusions looks like. That is okay. I mean, again, you should understand that you can have different conclusions. 
The more dangerous pitfall is when that bias starts to color the actual data they present. And you might think that data is concrete and cannot be changed, but that's not really true. Um, there are any number of ways that you can massage data to support certain conclusions, ranging from the methods of analysis to probably the most common one, which is just how you present it and what analyses you actually do. The, a very, very common uh, approach is you perform the study aiming for a certain outcome, and then it turns out you didn't affect that outcome. So you look for other outcomes. You said, maybe this will affect mortality, and the mortality was the same. And you say, well, maybe it affected something. Mm -hmm. So you go and look at other data. The length of stay in the ICU, the length of stay in the hospital, the mortality at 30 days, at 90 days, how long were they on the ventilator, what was the incidence of DVTs, of VAPs, how long did they need vasopressors. The more data you have, the more conclusions you can try to pull out of it, and eventually you'll probably find something that ended up being different between the groups. And then you could say, look at that. This intervention was associated with a, a difference in, um, you know, frequency of rashes or something like that. So that may be interesting, but of course, a, a real scientist would say that is merely hypothesis generating, not an actual conclusion, because it's the result of, you know, what we would call data dredging. They just dug through numbers until they found a pattern that was not previously specified. This is the difference between. Um, rolling a dice and, you know, calling a result before versus after. Mm -hmm. If you say it's going to be a six and you roll your die and it's a six, people would say, you have an ability to predict things. If you rolled the dice and it was six and you said that was six, everyone's going to say no shit. Um, <laughs> if you pre-specify an outcome, it's much more likely that a, a significant result is meaningful versus just if you did 400 analyses after the fact and you found something. That's when you then go and do another study where you specify that as your outcome. And you can find well-designed trials are all pre-registered. They're usually on clinicaltrials.gov, which is a, a, a universal government-supported website, and they put their protocols and, and their analyses in there. So you can see what they thought they were doing beforehand and if it changed. If their outcome shifted during the trial or after they collected data, that's a good sign that they're, they're, they went out looking for something more significant and more publishable. And um, hey, it is what it is, but you know, understanding that these, uh, you know, especially when the outcome they're focusing on seems like kind of a weird one. You're like, it seems odd that this would be what you set out to study. There's a good chance that's not what they set out to study, but they found it in there and they wanted to publish it. So here it is. Yeah. And I think when you talk about outcomes, that's the, the other thing to really look at is what outcomes do you as a reader care about, right? I think most of us would say, I want to change my practice in order to have better patient outcomes overall, right? I'm not necessarily that concerned with something that improves 24-hour mortality if everybody dies in a week. Um, you know, the other thing is the really important outcomes, the ones that we all care about, like do patients survive and do well and go on to have healthy lives, those are really hard to measure. Um, and so a lot of times we pick surrogate outcomes that are a lot easier to measure. And those surrogate outcomes may or may not accurately reflect 
the truth, or even if they do reflect the truth, they might not reflect the truth that you care about, right? If you're going to have a study, you know, looking at a new drug and uh, it's just too unfeasible or it's too expensive, it's too whatever to measure, does this affect people's overall long-term quality of life? Um, but I can say that um, patients, you know, spent less time in the ICU. We go, well, that's important. But if the less time in the ICU was by a matter of hours, maybe that's not so important, right? Right. Um, now, again, we don't have time. This could be a whole semester's course, if not a degree on kind of research methodology and analyzing the statistics. I, I just want to maybe highlight a few things that can be particularly confusing if you're kind of trying to tackle these numbers and take away something if you haven't spent a lot of time with these concepts. Um, one is the difference between relative and, and absolute impacts on outcomes. Um, you can present data typically in, in either way. When you're comparing two groups in any kind of quantified uh, datum between them. Um, so for instance, mortality. If 50% of people died in one group and there was a difference in the other group, you can either express that as a relative difference or an absolute one. Um, if the difference was 100% in the other group, an absolute difference would be 50%. That was the difference between the two groups in the absolute risk of their death. But you could also say, compared to one group, what fraction of them died? That's a poor example because it's also 50%. It's half of them. But in most cases where the impact of any of our interventions is fairly small, you're giving people a few percent difference, even in a successful intervention. Um, the relative difference may be large. You might double their chance of survival or something, but absolutely, it's only a few percent difference. You know, the difference between a 1% and a 2% chance of death is, is doubled, right, relatively, but absolutely, it's only 1%. So you can look at things either way. In many cases, I think the most honest way is absolute differences because that's kind of what matters to patients. I mean, <clears throat> those numbers are are different, but maybe they're not that different. <laughs> um, but many times things will be expressed relatively because it kind of explodes the difference and makes it easier to look at. And it certainly makes it sound more impressive, especially when you're looking at slim things. The classic one is enormous trials, like cardiology does these studies with hundreds of thousands of people. And that powers it well enough to find you know tiny differences in outcomes. Um, and they'll be like, this was a 60% reduced risk of you know cardiac events or whatever. And in reality, it's like, you know, between, took them from half of a percent risk to like 0.48% risk. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that, but understand, you know, what the actual impact of that is. When you treat a million patients, and yeah, there's a lot of patients who had an effect. When you treat one patient, it may be worth doing, but it's not like you're, you know, it's not like defibrillation. You're, you're pushing the needle a tiny amount. Yeah, I mean, to put it kind of more bluntly, right, is if, if you told a patient right now you have a one in a thousand chance of dying. But if you take this drug, you have a one in 500 chance of dying. I mean, it's still pretty small, but if you look at it relatively, you go, well, you're, you're half as likely to die by taking this drug. Right. Right. Now the other, uh, 
the other statistical caveat that can be confusing is when you express things as a probability, which is how we're just been describing it, versus an odds. Um, and many times things will be expressed as odds or odds ratios, a ratio between odds. And I, I think odds are just universally kind of confusing. They have an intuitive understanding for us when we talk about the most kind of simple odds. You hear this in, um, you know, gambling and stuff. Um, you know, the odds of something are like two to one, you know. It's two chances of the bad thing, one chance of the good thing, something like that. Um, but that starts to think like it's the same thing as probability, which it's not. And you can see this easily if you start to manipulate the numbers. You know, if the odds are, are two to one and then the, the chance of it doubles, what is the odds now? Is it one to one? What if it doubles again? Is it, is it 100%? No, I mean, odds never become certain. You just kind of winnow them down. Odds are, you know, the chance of one thing compared to the chance of the other thing, not the chance of something out of the, the total possibility. So they just become very confusing when you work with them numerically. Um, many times I find it easier to try to convert it to something like a probability, which is sometimes easy and sometimes not even possible. Um, sometimes the, the simplest thing is to convert everything into kind of one... Uh, normalized uh, set of numbers that is easily understandable. A common one people will use is a, a number needed to treat. So if you have 100 patients and you do this to all of them, how many of them do you have to treat to uh, see the uh, impact? So, you know, if you treat a million patients to affect one of them, that's understandably a, a small effect, right? But if the number needed to treat is three before you see the effect, that's intuitively a much stronger thing. It, you know, it doesn't make sense for everything to go use an NNT or a number needed to harm, which would be the equivalent for something bad, but that can be uh, impactful. They even made a whole website about it, the NNT, where they convert things into easily understandable data and analyze the literature. But you know, these are just things to consider when you're looking at numbers, because even just recognizing that you you know you're looking at a relative versus absolute numbers or you know an odds for instance versus just more intuitive probabilities you can at least start to recognize that the the analysis or the manipulation your brain wants to do to these things may not be the correct one yeah you know mark twain famously said there's lies damn lies and statistics and i think that we see this because like you said if I want to make something look more impressive than it is, I just choose the right statistical analysis to do. Um, and that's how I present it. There's other ways too, right? So let's talk about the p-value, right? This is one that comes up a lot in discussions about stuff like this. And in statistics, we see the p-value. And the p-value is this, this way to say, this is not by chance, right? If I treat X minute number of people with this drug, so many of them do well. Is it because of the drug or is it because of chance that randomly those X people would have done well anyway? Um, and so we do this statistical analysis, come up with this p-value that supposedly says, this is, not, this is not chance. This is because of our intervention. The problem is that the p-value is much more complicated than that, right? You get into things like power of the study. So you have a study with like Brandon said earlier, these cardiology station studies with hundreds of thousands of people, 
the statistics there are much more likely that that's good data, right? That that drug A had this effect, and we can say it was not chance because we have lots and lots of people in the study. Most studies in critical care aren't that big. And so what you'll frequently see is uh, the study had a p-value that found it was statistically non-significant, statistically insignificant, right? Meaning we can't swear that it wasn't just random chance. But a lot of times then authors will come back with, but it was clinically significant, right? This is a good way to kind of get around a bad p-value is clinically significant. We treated a hundred patients and you know, a lot of them, 80%, 80% of them did really well. Um, and so we just figure that it would be statistically significant if we had more than a hundred patients in our study. And maybe that's true, right? I mean, I'm, there's lots of studies I've read out there that I would buy that on and go, yeah, it's clinically significant. It's underpowered to show the the outcome that they wanted. They really needed 10,000 patients or whatever, but just because it looks good on a small number, doesn't mean it really is good. Yeah, and even if it really seemed like the trend was going that way, I mean, if you follow big trials um, over time, you know what the recruitment looked like. They they swing through trends. You know, they they'll go through twenty patients where the outcomes swung one way, and you're like, holy cow, this looks like clearly this intervention was beneficial or harmful or whatever. But then it swings the other way. I mean, that's just how data goes. It it can clump sometimes. It's only with the larger data set that you start to recognize that it all just averaged out, that kind of thing. That's why we do big studies and why we hopefully don't stop them uh, at early stages. So there's obviously a lot here. And realistically, even if you have a good training in statistics, um, it ends up meaning that a lot of us don't have time to really dig into very many studies, if any, and even then you're probably missing things. You know, when, when people conduct these studies, they still, you usually have statisticians and statistical experts who help them with the analyses. And, you know, maybe the, the you know, lead investigators kind of half understood the analyses that were being done. It turns into kind of a black box, which I really think can be a, a problem because even on a good day, the best of us are only somewhat understanding the, how the numbers worked in these studies. So, you know, what do you do? You listen to other people. So people who are good with the numbers, who analyze the trial, and they say, you know, this was well done or this was some flaws. And then you, you try to parse out if you understand that, if you believe them, if you agree with them. It's kind of one step removed from the data, but it's adding a perspective you wouldn't have had otherwise. You know, you'll find these in the same places that we talked about. Twitter or wherever else, many journals will put um, commentaries alongside major publications with a you know from a, an expert. A lot of institutions do a journal club, but if your journal club is just you and your buddies, you, you might not have you know statistical expertise there either. So it's it's tough. You know, you listen to people, form an opinion, and ultimately, what a lot of people do is you look for repetition and reproduction of results. So especially if a finding was important, significant, and novel, this is not what we've known in the past, people say, let's see it again. Sure, it was a pretty good trial, it was good size, but we've, we've been fooled before. Let's see someone else do a similar study, different patients, different setting, get the same result. That's when they start to believe it. And that's appropriate, I think. One of the kind of core tenets of science 
is reproducibility. Things that are true are true repeatedly in different times and places, whereas things that are essentially a product of, of chance or of how you crunch the numbers will not recur. And I can't even begin to tell you how many things that we once believed that were a product of initial smaller scale data with less rigorous models, you know, observational studies, things like that, were eventually readdressed in bigger, better controlled studies in other places, and the effect disappeared. We thought it, we thought it mattered, we thought it worked, we did a big study, no difference. Yeah, I mean, we see that all the time. And actually, this is one of the things that I think, it's the nature of science, it's the nature of data. Um, and, but it's one of the things that I think that has led to some of the problems we have in the popular media now, especially surrounding the last couple of years. I don't know if you guys were aware, there's a big, been a little controversy regarding these things called vaccines. Um, because papers get published that are garbage or they're good papers, but then we learn more. Right. And so people who don't understand science and people who don't understand data and medicine and stuff point to this and go, see, you guys don't know what you're talking about. You're just making stuff up because you used to say this, but now you say this. And I would argue, well, yeah, that's how science works, right? We used to think that the world was flat, and then we found out that, no, it's not. It's round. It doesn't mean we were lying before. Um, it just means that we learned more. Right. And I think that, I mean, this is a good thing for us to kind of wrap up by looking at, I think, which is how should you allow or ask the literature to affect your practice? And in particular for critical care, the universal theme for probably over 10 years now in the literature has been negative trials. We do those big studies on things that based on physiology, based on kind of initial clinical, you know, just trying things out and things that seem like they mattered, they do the big study and they don't matter. They, usually they're not even harmful. It just didn't make a difference. It, it's almost like boringly repetitious now. If I see a big RCT that was published on something that we do or thought we could try doing, I can guess it's gonna be a negative trial. Seems like nothing works. Um, that is the theme, and that may apply to other areas of medicine, but I think especially in critical care. And, you know, what do we, what do, we do with this? It, it's easy to become, uh, you know, people call it therapeutic nihilism. You start to believe nothing works, nothing matters. Why do we even try? The only thing that matters for patients is time, luck, and like antibiotics occasionally. And there's a there's some truth to that, right? It's good to be humble about what we do and start thinking that, all right, this is my plan for this patient. I think some of these things are important. Some of these things are less important, but still worth doing. But I understand that I may be wrong. A lot of these things might not matter at all. And certainly if they do, maybe less so than I thought, it makes sense that they would matter, but perhaps not in five years. Some Australians are going to do a big RCT proving that it didn't matter either way, whatever. Um, it's good to have that humility. Um, at the same time, you don't want to kind of go full nihilism here because some things do matter. And, you know, the old joke is that after a journal club, nobody's opinion is ever changed. They either say, 
oh, I already knew that, or I don't believe it. And you should have a good, thoughtful, skeptical eye of the literature, but you should, you should carve out some space to, to believe, <laughs> to allow your practice to be changed when appropriate, because otherwise uh, nihilism becomes sort of a form of laziness. <clears throat> you don't want to ever change what you're doing, so you start to say, um, nothing matters, so I'll just do what I always did, because that's what I'm used to and, and is what e is easiest. You know, on one hand, if things are equivalent, then it's good to know, because you could do the simpler thing, the lesser thing. You could not over-treat patients, go the kind of zentensivist route where you're um, just minimizing your atrogenesis, not piling on X, Y, and Z because you think you're making a difference. You just let the patient heal. That's good stuff. Um, but when there is something to be something to be done, some impact you can make, you're pursuing that as well. And, you know, people will all the time read studies and, you know, sometimes they're smaller studies. Maybe they're things that won't recur in a bigger trial, but they'll say, that's an interesting effect. And then they go off and, and they do the same thing they've always been doing. You know, al allow yourself to, to be swayed by, you know, the hard work and the, the endless hours and, you know, the, the patient volunteers who went into these studies, because unless you really think what you're doing is the best that you could do and could not be any better in any situation, there is still a role for science. Yeah. And I think sometimes we look and we go, you know, well, there's no evidence that this helps. So why are we doing it? Um, you know, and that's a good question. There's no evidence that this helps. Why are we doing it? But sometimes it's not necessarily that there's no evidence that it helps. There's just no evidence one way or another. And there's a lot of stuff we do that we don't have good evidence that it's beneficial, but we don't have any evidence that it's not either. And we know that it's not hurtful. And so, uh, you know, I think we have to have some grace and room in our practice for things like that. Like, you know, is, is this going to help? I don't know. I mean, there's really no good data saying it does, but there's no good data saying it hurts either. Yeah, and, th and that I think is really the intelligent way to look at all these negative trials. When you, you pull a large number of patients together and you rigorously control them so the groups are equal, what you end up doing is homogenizing them and treating them all as if they're the same. And perhaps it should not surprise us to then have a hard time finding interventions that benefit that entire group of people when they're all different. So I think it makes sense, and a lot of people are kind of pulling at this thread. This is one of the common themes at SCCM this year, was trying to individualize our understanding of a lot of disease processes to allow us to individualize the therapies. Things like sepsis and ARDS that are really are our syndromes. They're not specific diseases. There are many different pathophysiologies that can lead someone into that syndrome. But if we can tease those patients apart, so instead of piling them all into one trial, doing one you know, blunt intervention to all of them and then saying, well, it, it didn't work to that entire group, we can split them up and find who benefits from specific things that are more targeted. Um, because that just, that kind of makes sense anyway, physiologically, it's just been difficult to do so far. And that's what you do when you have a patient in front of you and you say, you know, the trial that was done with this therapy didn't show a benefit, but I don't know if this specific patient 
was represented by that. Either they weren't even included in that big group because it was selecting for very specific patient types, or you know, they might have benefited, but somebody else didn't benefit and they balanced out in the numbers overall. Um, now, you can easily start to use these arguments to ignore literature as well and say, I'm never going to be changed. My patient is not the one in that study. But it's a rational argument. Patients are not all the same. And if you truly think there's something about the physiology in front of you where this intervention makes sense, then you could probably say they haven't done that study yet. Yeah, I mean, I think look no further than the search for the definitive test for fluid balance, right? We, we looked at all these ways to tell if your patient needs fluid or doesn't need fluid, um, and we can't come up with anything because people are not widgets, um, and different physiology is different. But that doesn't mean I can't look at a patient in front of me and say, I mean, this patient needs fluid, right? Just because there's not a master test that applies to every human on the planet. Um, and I think you're right. Like we, we need to take all this stuff with a grain of salt, um, not be too arrogant to say, well, I know better. This is not, this patient is not the patient that they studied uh, and I'm going to ignore all the data, but at the same time, not just be slaves to an algorithm, basically approach where study showed this, that's what we do for everyone. Right. And, and there is a fine line here, but I, I think the way to do it is to look at specifically what was done in the study and ask if it does or does not apply to you. You know, the, the trials on the routine use of PA catheters for critically ill patients that were by and large negative, it didn't seem to benefit them, you know, led to a lot of people get, hardly using these at all anymore. <clears throat> but I think you could say, you know, th these were the populations they study and this is how they use them. Is that how I'm using them? Mm -hmm. If so, this result probably applies. It's, it's not helpful using that way. But if I'm using it in some other way, I have a, a more specific phenotype of patient and I'm doing something more um, kind of tailored to them, then you can make a sound argument that this is not what was studied. Now, if someone does that study and what they do does closely reflect what you're trying to do with this patient, then again, I think you would be wrong to ignore it. You can't argue that it doesn't apply to you because it it's, sure looks pretty similar. Uh, but I, you know, those are kind of two opposite but similar errors here. You know, acknowledge what was done and that it might apply to your care, but also acknowledge that if there are differences. Every I think the bottom line with all of this stuff is you need to read the literature with a critical eye. You need to understand the subtext. And you need to understand when it does and doesn't apply to the patient in front of you, right? We shouldn't throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, uh, research is flawed, and so therefore I don't believe anything that's published. Or uh, research is great, and every study that comes out is going to change my practice. Yeah. And, I mean, that's maybe what we can leave this with. Like, medical research is terrible. It's so hard to do. It takes so long. It's so expensive. And then the yield seems like it's so low. You know, handful of people read the thing you did, and then it doesn't change their practice. And you're like, my God, what was the point of all this? But when you start having these thoughts, which are all absolutely true, just try to remember. Every other way of thinking and coming to, you know, conclusions about medical practice is worse. 
Yeah. Every other way you could think of from sitting down in your easy chair and just cogitating on what works to relying purely on physiology to just listening to some guy who's convincing because they have a podcast or to, you know, relying on uh, tradition or religion or the stars or whatever. They're all worse. They may sound more convincing because they're more confident, but they end up being true even less often. So the reason that science is often doesn't have a lot to say is because it's hard to say those things and it's unwilling to speak when the answer is not clear. Uh, and while that's frustrating, it's better than the alternative. Yep. Medical research, the way we do it, is the absolute worst system there is, except for every other system. Exactly. So... Well, I think that's a good place to wrap up. Um, so to our patron who suggested this, uh, I hope this was helpful. And if yeah, not, I'm sure it wasn't, know. but I, I yeah. don't know what more we can, what more we can do. I mean, yeah. that's, that's where we're at. I think with medical literature, there's other approaches, but I think a lot of them are, are not too different from us. Some people have a little more expertise, some less, some people have more time and, and effort. I don't think anyone can truly keep up with every twist and turn of the literature in more than one or two very isolated areas. So if you want to carve out that space, you know, more power to you. You can be the guy that people go to to, to see, you know, what's going on in the world of mm -hmm. uh, whatever, uh, peep or something. Um, and other than that, you know, the big stuff you probably will hear about as long as you kind of keep your, keep your finger on the general pulse of things. And have some ability to, you know, unpack methodology, uh, having, you know, humility about it, both your understanding as well as just, you know, how much time and effort you're really putting into it on a regular basis. And, um, you know, kind of accepting that's the way the world is until the AIs all come along to do it better. Yeah, that's right. Well, uh, thanks for joining us again for another, um, I don't know if that's fascinating, but it certainly was a discussion. Um, if you would like to suggest some topics, uh, go visit our Patreon, um, sign up and become a patron, and you too can maybe get a podcast uh, custom made for you. Thanks, guys. 